Welcome to Take Note. This is, of course, our podcast about writing uh, things down in uh, our notebooks and sharing them with each other in a whimsical fashion. I'm here with Adam. Hello, Adam. Hey, Ted. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, two pieces of uh, Dave's bread. Oh, that's the good Unt- stuff, right? Untoasted. With spread, I found I find that that bread is so good I don't even have to toast it to enjoy it. Huh? What is that? Take, are all take Dave's that bread people. the same Dave's bread, or are there different types of Dave's bread? I mean, I know it's a brand. I just don't yeah, know. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few varieties. varieties yeah. This is uh, I think Costco. Costco sells a twofer, which seems like the best deal in the house. Normally they're like six bucks a piece, but at Costco they're always two for seven. I don't. Which is amazing. I don't think our Costco gets Dave's bread, but I'm going to look for it. Really? Yep. They, they, they went dormant for a while with the Dave's, but they came roaring back to my great excitement. What'd you have for breakfast, man? I thought you'd never ask. Had <laughs> a banana. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, glad we got there. Uh, well, every uh, every episode we ask each other a question. Sometimes it's, what did you have for breakfast? <laughs> uh it's what do you got and that means what have you written down in your notebook that's uh worthy or not worthy of sharing i'll be the judge of that uh adam what do you got all right i've got a long one for you so i don't know, buckle up <laughs> our neighbors were blasting polish jazz out their window saturday night i looked inside their house as i walked past and i caught magda's eye she ran outside and brought me inside for a drink. Jennifer came over. That's my wife. I texted our kids a couple houses away while they played video games to make sure they were all set. You have to see Peter's whiskey room, Magda told me. Can you help him drink it all? Peter's whiskey room contains 96 bottles, as best I could count. Scotch on the bookshelf to the left. Bourbon on the bookshelf to the right. The whiskey room is in the basement, by the way. Most bottles cost $200 or more, he said. He collects Ardbeg's limited committee editions of Scotch, for example. Magda and Peter are ready to retire and return to Krakow, but the taxes to bring the whiskey collection back with them would be unbearable. He needs to drink or sell everything. Magda and Peter refill our glasses again and again. Peter shows me his antique cameras, including the model that Ansel Adams used, probably an 8x10 Deerdorf, but it's hard to repeat with confidence anything you've learned in the whiskey room. (laughs) Another neighbor brings over some vegetables, and soon she is putting down her tiny glass of expensive whiskey. I can't drink anymore, she says. (laughs) The same neighbor has at least one complaint about every other neighbor on the block. I quickly realize if we weren't there, she'd have something to say about us, too. I sneeze while drinking scotch and almost choke. I keep repeating, (laughs) I just sneezed at the wrong time. I'm fine. Magda brings me a glass of water, and Peter says, I told you to cut it. It's 100 proof. Of course, I had cut the drink with water every time he'd recommended it for his fine whiskey. I drank his whiskey exactly as he told me to each time. (laughs) But I keep that to myself, as you do after you've been invited to the whiskey room. For the next day, when I blow my nose, I can taste whiskey every time. We make it home, (laughs) hydrate, and order a pizza. Jennifer says, I think I said some pretty dumb things. I tell her no one will remember. 
At 5.30 the next morning, were awoken by gunshots. Five of them. They really sounded like gunshots, we agree. We listen for sirens, but hear nothing. It was probably the neighbors, who are always setting off fireworks at ludicrous times. The neighbors all of us complained about the night before. But it was not fireworks. And this is not how you want to wake up the morning after you were invited to the whiskey basement. The family that lives behind our next-door neighbor found four bullets in their car that afternoon. They'd assumed fireworks as well that morning. Another house was shot at around the same time, one mile away. The shooting isn't related to the whiskey house, but I keep trying to fabricate some link. They happened 12 hours apart, a few houses away, practically the same suburban corner. I mean, amazing. Uh, I I can't imagine anything more dangerous than the with oh, a whiskey room, right. a room of whiskey. Yep, yep. It just can't. I mean, especially when it's so good. And uh, yeah, you know, I kept thinking about what we always say that at least our hobby is cheap because he's got these limited edition oh, art yeah. bags that you have to become a member to. Uh, I looked it up afterwards. You got to become a member in order to buy them and everything. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, we had, uh, we had Adam Harris on the show a long time ago and he's a, he's a whiskey aficionado. And, uh, uh, after, uh, they had us over for dinner one night, the walk home was. Yep. What do you got, Ted? Well, I've got uh, uh, hardly anything so well structured as that, but I was at the uh, the farmers market, neighborhood farmers market. Happy to say it, it is a neighborhood farmers market. It's still pretty new. We can walk over there. It's in the parking lot of a uh, of a dying uh, strip mall, which will also happily be gone soon. Um, but we went and got some fresh squeezed lemonade, and in the five minutes I was standing there. Uh, just saw some nice little vignettes. I took very rough notes, so there's some interpretation going on. First one said, uh, first little scratch note says, stand behind Bahamas. <laughs> um, so I was wearing my my uh, ironic mesh hat that I found at a thrift store that just says Bahamas on it in very 80s kind of stitch. Um, and it's bright and, and fun. Uh, but as I was ordering my fresh squeezed lemonade, the, the lady said, oh, did you go to the Bahamas recently? And I said, nope, just saw the funny hat. And so uh, there were two lines. You had to stand in one line and order and then go stand in another line to get your lemonade. And so I was standing in the second line and, and someone uh, ordering was, you know, she was she was pointing um, to where he needed to go to wait for his lemonade. And she pointed and said, uh, go, go stand behind Bahamas over there. um let's see the next uh thing i looked to my left and i saw a these were big uh big lemonade cups i looked saw a little kid in a stroller holding one of these cups of fresh squeezed lemonade and it looked like a a trash can full of lemonade that was amusing he was a small (laughs) child um as i was waiting in line uh Watching all these people, uh, you know, do the do the cash transaction part of it, or, or the you know the transaction. Uh, guy steps up, kind of a a dad, you know, a, a dad of maybe teenage or adult kids. Guy, you know, kind of a kind of a gray fox weekender, <laughs> weekender type. 
leans in to the uh, to the the cashier lady, and you know I think uh, lemonades were like seven bucks for you know for this really big cup, a um, fresh squeeze right in front of you. He leans in, he's, he goes, uh, hey, uh, five for 30? <laughs> I was like, is this guy... <laughs> always it, what is that? Always wheeling. Always wheeling and dealing. Wheeling. And uh, you know, his, his partner or whatever was like, I, just, just pay for him, pay for him. And he was like, I got this, all right? Don't worry about it. I got it. I got it. It's fine. It's fine. And the cashier had to turn to the... You know, guy squeezing the lemonade and be like, "Is this? Can we do five? The guy was like, "Yeah, it's fine," but uh, oh, oh, five for thirty, uh, bold. Um, and that's it. That was my uh, that was my experience. A delicious lemonade. Uh, the kids drank a quarter of this jug. We took it home, put it in the freezer. The next day, they spent forty five minutes trying to chip <laughs> chip away at the frozen block of lemonade and. Pretend like they were enjoying it. And then the next day, they let it melt and actually finished it. So we really got our $7 worth uh, a piece for the, out of those lemonades. Good times. $7 uh, a lemonade and a uh, new nickname, Priceless. <laughs> what, are you, uh, what are you writing in right now? All right. I'm, what's, your, what's, what's your notebook life? I'm writing in this uh, field notes trailblazer edition that's called you know there's not much you have to do on this show except to remember the name of the notebook you're using that is written on the notebook you're using i'm writing in the field notes trailhead edition wait for it there it is yep i believe i'd asked you to ask me this question too and then was unprepared um and i am (laughs) using i'm using a couple of i'm using a uniball signo in blue Uh and i'm using a uniball jet stream 1.0 1.0 in black because I've been writing in white and black, but I'm also using a pen I want to tell you about, which is the Uniball One Point Three Eight Edition. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Jennifer, my wife, aforementioned in the whiskey room story, uh, spotted these somewhere. She's got some uh, multicolor Uniball Ones in Point Three Eight. I've only been using the black one. I like it a lot. It's click pen, no cap. Um, they claim that there are large pigment particles that make the ink appear blacker on the paper. I mean, I like it. Ugh. It looks good. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I, it seems good. <laughs> That's true. They also claim, listen to this, Uniball, <laughs> Uniball <laughs> 1 ink doesn't just look good. It may even help you be a better student. A study... At Ritsumikan University in Japan found that students who studied notes with notes written with a black Uniball 1 pen were better able to recall the information than students reading notes written in ordinary black ink who were then hit over the head. No, I made the last <laughs> part. And then also there is the clip on it is great. So it is a, it's, it looks like it's a paper clip, kind of. It's not exactly. Yeah. Um, and they say about it, because I found... I found myself realizing that all I could say was that I like the clip, but not why. They say a wire clip that opens wide for attaching the pen to a notebook or a textbook. Well, I mean, students at Raycomon (laughs) University uh, were proven to to keep track of their pens for 18% longer when using a 
the clip on the Uniball one. That's right. That's right. I like this pen. Why I don't, recommend it. Yeah, I don't know this, but where, where did you uh, acquire it? Do you recall? I do not know where they were ordered from. I know you can get them on jet pens, so maybe that's where we got them. Well, I sure. mean, Uni I find to be the inexpensive pen company. I have yet to really experience a product of theirs that's not stellar, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, I think um, you'll really like them. You you got to tell me fun. if you think the large pigment particles stay on the surface of the paper more yeah. so than every well, other you, Uniball pen. I mean, can you order the medium pigment pigment particle from jet pens, or do they only offer the large <laughs> pigment particles? Well, I think the large pig, pigment particles are uh, part of the deal with the Uniball one pen. I feel like now <laughs> I'm making a commercial. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a an outfit that I I'm just so impressed with so regularly that I have no problem just being a total shill. When I'm in Target, uh, the the Target near me started carrying Jetstream pens. I go to the pen aisle every time just to just for the comfort of knowing they still sell them. Nice. And the last time I was there, they were offering. <clears throat> two two packs for the price of one and i so i bought two packs and i'm my goal in life which i'm i'm near to achieving is that in my house the pens that are lying around will eventually just all be uniball jet stream pens i'm getting there uh thanks to target but uh that way they're not precious they're just around and they're so good that i have one in my pocket right now um so you've You've added to our repertoire. My 12-year-old Logan uh, just picked uh, Pilot V5s. Pilot V5s for his school pen. Yeah. Pilot V5s and V7s for his pens for school. Um, It's a classic gateway pen. Good gateway pen. Yep. Hopefully good school pen. Good. Well, I'm writing, you know, speaking of stuff that's... What did you have for breakfast? (laughs) I grabbed this uh, this Rhodia pencil out of my pencil cup, which I don't know if you remember, but this is the worst pencil ever produced. <laughs> it looks. I know you're cool. not a fan of the Field Notes pencil. Yeah, well, actually, that one's the worst pencil. I would pick the oh. I would pick the Rhodia over the Field Notes simply because the Field Notes pencil writes in a line that uh, I remember this Rhodia pencil. This is you a bad need a, pencil. <laughs> an electron microscope to to even see the line rhodia is not quite that bad but it's it looks cool it's orange with a black like wood that's dyed black i guess uh the the rhodia logo stamped poorly on the <laughs> barrel the eraser fell off long ago so now it's just this chipped gross looking uh end and it it's scratchy when it writes it's triangular which is preposterous i suppose it's a little bit supposed to be designy but uh, there's no cedar, no cedar scent to this thing, and it's scratchy and it's terrible. But I grabbed it, and I, it's just whimsical enough that it catches my eye, and I, I, it's like I hope for it to be okay. But now it's almost just a novelty. Like, oh, let me keep using this really crappy pencil for a little while. That's what I'm sets us apart my, uh... from the other <laughs> stationary podcasts: <laughs> our willingness to put up with products that we don't like out of some sort of whimsy. <laughs> uh we settle here at take note uh i'm writing in the uh in the uh what is this one called one job we had one job 
one job. <laughs> you said it was written in these things. Where do they write it? Uh, back cover. Inner back cover. This is the copper atomic number 29, group 11. That's what it is. In a dot grid, which is just bothered. So, okay. Like, I, I, I really like a ruled line. When I write in a dot grid notebook, I try to write the letters in generally the size that I write writing yep. using the English alphabet. Yep. And it truly does not feel like it fits between the width of the dot grid dots in the, you know, writing in a normal fashion. It feels like I am trying to fit my writing on a a tiny scroll that I'm about to roll up and put on a carrier pigeon's leg in order to deliver a a secret message. I just don't understand how you can live this way. Well, you're not supposed to use... Um, you're supposed to be using Morse code in a dot notebook. That's why it's a dot notebook. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, That's I write bigger. I mean, can... no, honestly, I, I just write bigger if I'm using a graph. Or well, you, a... Yeah, you, you are... Um, I, you've always set an example of uh, screw the lines, just go... Just get the words down no matter what... No matter where they should fall on the page, which is the only reasonable way for a person to write on a in a dot grid notebook um to write words you write another stuff go to town you want to make little doodle squares like i've been doing with this terrible rhodia pencil you're made in the shade with this dot grid but if you're trying to write actual words it's it gives me anxiety so now of course i've only got you know 78 more pages of this handsome uh Group 11 notebook to get to, and it's already bugging me. It's already bugging me. When I'm writing in a ruled notebook, I do find that my writing falls right into the lines. You know, in my notebook, actually, I wrote something that follows up on our discussion the last couple episodes. I wrote, uh, maybe I should make a list of short stories I like and try to describe the plot in one sentence. And then I did that. And I will read those, well, except I struggled with the one sentence. I'll, I'll read the three that I did in a second. But I did this because I I am walking around in my life uh, constantly thinking, what the hell is a story? You know, like <laughs> trying to write stories and trying to figure out, you know, what can a story yeah. be? And uh, is that a story? Or, uh, you know, find myself writing a story and realizing it's not a story. How much of the story should I know and understand before I begin writing the story. Like, maybe I should be able to write the plot of a story in a sentence before I go and try to write a whole story. So mm-hmm. that that's just why uh, this thought came to me. And I've written a few of them. Um, yeah, I've written three of them. I don't know if you know these stories, actually. I've read a Otessa Moshfeg story, The Weirdos, the other day. Uh, really like her short story collection. She's an interesting woman who's written uh, a few novels now that I haven't read, but I think I've read like every interview of her. So the story is a uh, the story as I described it. The story is the weirdos. A woman who should leave her loser boyfriend disappoints him, and he leaves her for meth. Recommend the story, the weirdos. Um, <laughs> Hemingway's the killers. Two hitmen take over a diner and wait for their victim. But then I found, and I think I actually learned something 
about the stories here. I found that I had to write, like, there's one more page, or there's, like, one additional sixth of the story, because a very short story, uh, which I called The Turn. I don't know if that's what you actually call it. Nick Adams goes to warn the victim, but the Swede, the victim, has already given up. So you've got the whole story is this in this diner. I don't know if you've read The Killers or if it's been a while. Yeah. Um, and then in the end, the part that I just couldn't squeeze into another, and that I couldn't squeeze into that one sentence, is this thing that uh, the guy's not going to run. He's given up. He knows he's going to be caught. Yeah. All right. And then the last one, uh, my buddy Kugler, who was on the show once to talk about Slacker, we really liked this William Burroughs story in high school. They do not always remember. And I described it. A man who believes he is a narcotics officer in Mexico is trapped in an undercover agent house of mirrors. Um, so I, I recommend you find that. You could. There's a PDF. Huh. It's harder to find the text of that story than it used to be. It's also an exterminator. It's a really good story. It's a very, very short story. But it uh, the understanding of what's happening changes like every paragraph. So I was excited to be able to realize that I could write that in a single sentence. And I think this is maybe an exercise I'm going to continue to do because there was something about it that, I don't know, made me learn something about stories. Maybe that, yeah. again, maybe just that you should know what the story is that you're writing. Well, I, I, like, I like how earnest it, an effort it is. You're not trying to be ironic or poetic or... Uh or evasive you're, you're really trying you're taking a sincere stab at uh at you know c- capturing the essence but the, you know the the burrows one is funny because you know what what good is the phrase house of mirrors when you're using it as a metaphor in a summary you know it's like it kind of you can tell through through that summary that the story itself defies a, a description except to use a metaphor that implies total chaos right and, you know, right right perceptive confusion it was itself. a challenge to figure that one out but uh but actually i mean i think there's something there's something really useful even for me just in that phrase house of mirrors because yeah i think if i have some urge to write some very strange confusing story actually i just read the dead hotel i believe um by kevin power Kevin Powers, um, and I'm not sure that I could write that write a summary of that story in one sentence. It's uh, it's on the Stinging Flies website. I really enjoyed it, um, but it, you'd have to kind of fully understand that and figure out the turn in that story, and and using some sort of language like that, you probably could get it down to one sentence. And I think, I think that technique can help you get a some sort of control of trying to do something weird in a story like that you know yeah well i i I like to the the summaries you've written because i think you have tried to capture the the tension the the, like you're using this phrase to turn which i think is perfect because that's you know as a reader that's what you're looking for like what is what what is the swing here? And, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be able to recall exactly what they were, but I'm reminded of the, the Ezra Klein shows episode with George Saunders that you've happily reminded, um, 
reminded me of, and I, I got through half of it today. But f funnily enough, uh, the host, as Recline, kept asking Saunders to summarize, I think, the stories that he discussed in his recent book, like the kind of yeah, like the Russian short stories that yeah. uh, he probably goes on about at length. But it, it was a funny thing to me, in, 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 this, in light of you doing the same exercise, it's funny that the host was kind of asking a, a writer to summarize someone else's writing, you know, for the purposes of, of talking about it. But it's just such a funny thing. And he, you know, he, he was, uh, Saunders is, is a master at talking about the turn in the same way. And, and I mean, I actually jotted down notes as I was driving i had my notebook open next to me at a stoplight but uh, i wrote down how do people change over time and and saunders and klein kind of talk about how the characters in some of these russian stories don't even they change but they don't even fundamentally change they just redirect their energy to a new cause yeah which i was just totally fascinating um but you can you can you know, if you were trying to summarize that, um, it, I mean, uh, Saunders did it in a pretty remarkable way. But I think it's that change over time that a, a great summary would include, which I think is a signal that that's what a great story he uh, includes is that a pivot point or a turn or and yeah, and I think it's hard to. Those. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to find that change and figure out what that change the story is. And he talks. So this is uh, this is a useful like little bit of log rolling. We got a couple of blog posts that I've written about this book that he's interviewed about by Ezra Klein. And uh, I wrote a new one today because there was actually an excerpt from that interview that I really liked. Um, and then I wrote one back in February with just my notes from a swim in the pond in the swim in a pond in the rain which is his book analyzing these seven stories and one of the things that i keep going back to is he says how in, and i'm not even i'm not going to be as eloquent as my paraphrasing of it but he says that specificity is so important in mm. the story because you have to be really specific so that you can then well, there's a few things that you can do, but um, so that you can show that change. If each story has to show some sort of change, the only way you get to that change is by first creating the specificity, which you mm -hmm. can test throughout the story and then also have some sort of change at the end. And uh, I, I come back to that idea a lot because I don't do it. Like, I don't know how to get that specificity down just yet. Um, but yeah. I, the quote that I shared on the blog today from that interview is all about revision and it's, there's mm -hmm. really good insight into his revision process because Ezra Klein asks him to, um, to, to, to be very specific about like physically what he's doing and when he's doing it. And then in his head, what's happening. And so I'm, I'm revising my story in that way too, beginning to revise my story in that way too. And I, the idea I guess is that over time and over you know maybe hundreds of revisions you build that specificity into the story i i thought he, he he something i don't feel like i've heard before uh is the way that he relates the human condition to what you're trying to do in a piece of writing 
you know, his, his, his mantra is like, we are sort of trapped in our brains, which are, are, they're limited and they're faulty and they are, you know, they, they, they're working with, with bad data or limited data and they're, they're just not very good processors. Uh, and yet they convince themselves that they are preeminent or so, you know, he uses these amazing turns of phrase that's yeah. worth listening to. But, it, but then he, he didn't just sit there with that. He, he turned it to fiction and, and more or less said, you know, that is how you create interesting fiction is to have characters, uh, convinced of their own preeminence, smash into each other and, you know, try and figure it out. And I thought that was... It was a really fascinating insight, not into, or, or not only into, you know, just being a human, but also how to kind of think about that in the in the realm of storytelling. There's something similar that he says that I, I kind of thought you were maybe going to go to that struck me in that interview, which is that when he goes to revise these uh, stories, he brings a different version of himself, not on purpose, yes. but just by going yes. back to the story over and over and over again, over days and weeks, each time he reads it, there's a different version of himself. And he says that the drafts of the stories start from a very kind of lefty point of view. But as he goes <laughs> back again and again, um, there's just different versions of himself, a grumpy version of himself and a different, and trying to take a different point of view. And he says that that's where the, uh, that's where the stories really begin to get interesting, which is fascinating to me. I don't do yeah. anything like that, like anywhere close. Well, uh, it's a perfect example of the mantra that's now authorless. I think at this point that writing is revising and any, you know, any illusion of, uh, of uh you know genius flowing from the pen and a life of you know you write your novel and then you go and live your life of leisure outside of that dispelled you know passionately and flagrantly um which is great because it means you know and i think this is how he means it but it means that any of us can work our writing over and that it's a matter of the work the work that you put in um, you can stop anywhere you want, or you can revise another 100 times and see where it goes. And, um, I don't know. My experience lately just working on a longer thing, uh, is the, a sense of, uh, openness. I don't know. It's kind of, you know, uh, it's like, I'm thinking of it as a novel, but I'm also just trying to trying to be a create a character a narrator that's a human in the world and sort of um i don't know having the the narrator experience life kind of as i think of it um is almost the opposite i think of what you're talking about with short story writing but but it's giving me the the pleasure that i sort of feel like saunders is referring to of you know um i don't know it's kind of the mix of creativity but uh trying to be specific or tr trying to be interesting i thought that, that was the thing about his revision process it's just a brutal brutal analysis of reading your own work and deciding if you're bored with yourself or not and right, if you are right. revi revise it and i thought that was fascinating too but i you know I'm, I'm using this cambridge limited uh notebook and it is limited so if you're if you're looking for one of these 
uh, snap it up now because because it's it's got limited written right there on the cover. Um, but it's got this column on the left that's blank, and the two thirds of it on the right are ruled. So I'm I'm writing myself little notes about writing or other ideas or you know oh maybe this is a side story and that kind of thing in the left hand margin. But I found myself the other day even before listening to that Saunders um, uh, interview, almost like prompting myself to to in a as a way to push myself to be more interesting. I wrote uh, what did I write like. Uh, there, I wrote, you know, I have a couple kids who are like super competitive with each other and I was feeling I needed to get specific. So I wrote a line to tee myself up the next time I sit down to write. There was one competition that really summed up their relationship, colon. <laughs> like I just sort of almost like, I was like, hey, write something that, write about, think of one competitive experience that sums up their dynamic. Right, but I wanted to make sure that that was my goal the next time I sat down. So I just wrote that with a colon, as a it just as a trigger. Right. And Did I, you come I, up with I it? I almost think not yet. I haven't. It's just blank below that, except for a bunch of uh, doodles with this terrible pencil. Oh, you um, should try the Uniball one. <laughs> but it's you know, there, there's I think part of what he in dispelling the myth he kind of says in a way do do what you need to do to manipulate your own self into making your writing more interesting don't wait for other people to do that if you need to do little tools or cues or revisions or you know self-talk do it like nobody's there's no rules here right so i was kind of happy that i stumbled on a, a little tool for myself um along the way rather than just thinking that there's some muse that's going to come down and magically uh, uh, push your pen across the paper like a Ouija board. This, uh, this reminds me, this reminds me of a couple things, but uh, something that maybe ties a lot of this together is uh, I was reading this article. It was a review of John Cheever's journals that came out like 10 years ago. And um, in the review, they were saying that, um, like so so Cheever's journals were compiled over decades it was like 4000 pages long at first um and then edited down and there would be it was a lot of like just self talk about his life and his feelings and everything which you don't really see in the stories at all but i guess mm-hmm. what he would do is in the stories there there would be just like a stray sentence about uh, you know i can't think of the exact example but like very deep thoughts about his life in this kind of well-plotted story there'd just be like a stray line about prompt that basically was how Cheever was feeling one day and he found maybe years later that this one way of describing one feeling or um the way the light was hitting uh his room one day would fit into the story and so there'd be these um just this like one sentence one stray sentence here or there that would occasionally make it from the journals to the stories and so actually when I was Right, this this thing that happened to me Saturday night and Sunday morning, I'm I'm really bothered by the fact that there isn't really a through line between the two events, the whiskey room and then hmm. the the shooting, and so, you know, I, I kind of, and that's not a story, right? And so, and 
that's that's not a one sentence thing right you can't really explain that in the one sentence and sure there's probably some way to like create this you know to create it into something larger than that or something like that but it just uh the realization that like the things that go into the notebook maybe it's just a stray sentence or something here or there that inspires uh that that fits into a story at some point in the future and it also made me feel like maybe i need to write up those old notebooks and really go and dig through them for some stray thing about how i was feeling 10 years ago that maybe works its way into a completely unrelated story that i'm writing like maybe yeah. in uh you know maybe not in the novel you're writing now but in you know something years down the road like you got a character called bahamas <laughs> Uh, let's do this again next week, Adam. What do you say to that proposition? I had a banana. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, find us on the internet at takenote.space. I mean, we love talking creativity. If you have any, I don't know, just thoughts about how your notebooks have informed your creative work or, or just how, how creativity plays a role in your life, let us know on the, uh, the Say Hello button over on that site you can find us on twitter twitter.com slash take note pod until then please take care